Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week, we're discussing Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Season 1 episodes, Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach, and The Serene Squall. Annika. Yes? Is it possible that we are being punked? Are we on candid camera? Is Ashton Kutcher going to pop out and go, hey, as a social experiment, you guys got different episodes to the rest of the entire internet? Oh, they're going to a lot of effort if, <laughs> if this is all about making sure that we're being gaslit by the Star Trek fandom. But different episodes than everyone else. That's a plausible concept mm. to me. <laughs> Because I do not understand how people watched the two episodes that you and I watched and went, oh yeah, this is good television. People are rapturous. Yeah. They find lift us dot 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 <laughs> to be profound and something that we're going to think about for years after watching. I mean, I have been thinking about it for a week, but that's because I'm so angry about how bad it was. If you're going to rip off Le Guin, at least try and do a good job. And then the Serene Squall, everyone's saying it's a romp. It's just so fun and enjoyable. And what a great, amazing villain who's going to recur. And they, in fact, want them to have their own spin-off. Oh my god, I would totally watch a Dr. Aspen spin-off. I would be very on the fence about watching a Captain Angel spin-off, but I assume that this is just cosmic payback for my love for Emperor Jojo, who is, you know, also a, a controversial character. I mm. will say it was certainly a fun episode in that by the end, Erin and I were so completely not on board that we were howling with laughter at every single development. But we were laughing at it, not with it. So I had issues with both of these episodes. Spoilers. I don't even know <laughs> which one I liked less for different reasons. I think that at the end of the day, the first one was the less imaginative mm. and more annoying. <laughs> so that's the one that I don't like. The only thing I like about it is the title. The title the is outstanding. The, the cute little kids and Rukia, who I will die for. Yes, and also the cute little kid's very handsome dad. Yes, that too. I who agree. is only doing his best in a terrible situation and a very bad script. The Serene Squall, I agree, it's fun. It had a lot of playful hijinks going on. But there was a real... I didn't like the juxtaposition of serious topics like Spock's issues with his identity and Dr. Aspen slash Angel's belief system and their whole subplot. And then the completely ridiculous pirate stuff yeah. going on. <laughs> like there was just such a big <laughs> dissonance between <laughs> we're having serious Vulcan conversations and we are talking like pirates for fun and the mutiny scene was hilarious but also 
so over the top. Everything pirate was more over the top than I can handle. Yes, I was unable to connect on any level with the pirate stuff. And for the record, I loved our flag queen's death. So I don't have a problem with comedy pirates, but these comedy pirates weren't actually funny. It was just a lot of noise and running around distracting and undercutting from the Spock story, which was genuinely interesting, although subtextually I had problems with it. But first, let's talk about the dead child story. Because in 2022, a few weeks after a terrible school massacre where a lot of brown children were murdered, we have to see a brown child being sacrificed by a white lady for the good of society. Brown children were murdered and the authorities stood by and did nothing. Yeah. That is literally what happened in Uvalde, Texas. There are multiple reports that the police stood and watched the school shooting go on for over an hour. While parents while, were trying to break while into While parents the were school. trying to fight their way into yeah. the school and while 10-year-olds were speaking with 911 operators begging someone to help them. I worry that my tone might come across as flippant. My heart has been breaking with every new piece of news and I thought that I was very desensitized to American gun violence. Right, and then the other thing is that there have been multiple shootings every day since then yes. in America that we don't even talk about anymore because it's just what happens. Right. And ever since I think the Pulse Massacre, I have gotten very used to waking up and checking the news and seeing that there's been a fresh atrocity. So it's all very well to rip off Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas, but America is Omelas. And if it takes an episode of Star Trek to even get you thinking about it, that's a you problem. And I'm sorry, this is heavy stuff for first thing in the morning, but the allegory doesn't hold up. And as I said in our last episode, I am skeptical of allegory in this particular era. Omelas was a groundbreaking story when it was published in 1973. It's not only too close to home right now, because really the world is Omelas, but the idea that you will just either stay or walk away is a false binary. And I think it's significant to note that N.K. Jemison's tribute to Omelas is called The Ones Who Stay and Fight. Right. So I completely agree with allegory, mostly because I have two reasons. And the first is that people aren't swayed by allegory. There are certainly Star Trek fans or people who firmly believe that new trek is too woke <laughs> quote unquote because there are allegories yes of non-binariness for example but not only that but there are literal non-binary characters and there are yes. literally queer characters and they're not just played by cis het people wearing funny makeup and then people are saying, you know, when did Star Trek become woke? And the answer is 1966, except that they don't read that because they don't see the allegory. Mm. They see it as a sci-fi story. They don't see it as something that relates to reality. Right. 
And then the second reason is that since 1966 and the 90s particularly, we as a society have become really bad at media literacy. <laughs> yeah. I am just devastated by the state of analysis these days where people point at any story and say this is a plot hole and it is literally the plot it is not a plot hole if they don't tell you what to believe in episode one and mm. wait to reveal something in episode three that is called storytelling right I don't understand what is going on in the world. And then the thing is that, yes, the whole world is a mellus and we don't have to relate it to a school shooting. We can also relate it to the handling of the coronavirus. Yes. And how we've just decided to give up and say, hey, anybody who's immunocompromised or too young, oh well. Oh, look, I noticed that a disproportionate number of people who really loved that episode were British. And not all Brits, obviously, but even very left-wing British people were very into this. And I truly do believe it's because the whole United Kingdom is a society that's overtly founded on the suffering of others, whether that's the British Empire or, more recently, their treatment of the disabled, which has then led to this massive terrible situation where they just let coronavirus happen. I don't think all British people are bad. I think Australia honestly has very similar problems and a very similar smallness of spirit, but it just jumped out at me that this was the demographic so particularly responsive to this episode. Especially because like it's not legally available in the UK. So, guys. <laughs> so they're pirates. Yeah who are inspired, I guess. <laughs> so I just want to read this thing that I read on Twitter and I'm not going to say who it was because I don't think that's important. It was mm. a oft relayed opinion. Yes. I had to give Alora credit for pointing out our own societies built on the suffering of the poor, including children, but they don't look away from it. They know how that's worse, right? But yeah, <laughs> cheaty needed here because <laughs> that's not good. That's not good. Looking at it and deciding to do it anyway, not a good look. Yeah. But yeah. also, like you're saying, if you had to have a Star Trek alien lady on a really screwed up utopia dystopia world tell you that our society is built on suffering but we look away from it you're looking away from it like that that's then it's true you are looking away from it and you're not seeing it and i don't understand how what you take away from that is good job star trek <laughs> especially because this was presented as the lighter episodic Star Trek that is not going to go to grim, dark, nihilistic places the way Discovery is widely accused of doing. And then we're just like, hey, dead child. Oh, well, that's sad. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah. but I have ranted before about the foolishness of calling Discovery grim, dark or nihilistic, even in its first season. This was nihilistic. And Michael Burnham would have saved that child. Michael Burnham 
would have saved the child. Every single captain who has had a series would save that child, except possibly Archer. Because he's your trash captain, but also Strange New Worlds is very much the heir to Enterprise. I agree. Yes, very true. And that's interesting. It's interesting if they're trying to tell the story of people who don't have it all together Mm. and don't have a saving people thing and don't work that way yet, except that Pike is definitely being hailed yeah. in a similar way. You know, this is why Archer is my trash captain, is that he becomes president of the Federation and an ambassador, and he is, like, personally responsible for everything wrong in the Federation. And Pike is his successor in that way, in that if he is the pinnacle of Starfleet, which they have said on the series and in Discovery multiple times. Yes. Then him staring into the sun <laughs> as his, like that's his ultimate plot <laughs> of this episode is, oh, well, that happened. I'm going to be sad now. That's a problem. Of course, there's not an easy solution. Like I get that maybe Michael Burnham's solution would be too easy and too simple, but also doing nothing mm. is doing nothing. I would also say that Michael would get a whole season to solve this problem. And so we would have the child and his dad request asylum and Alora tries to get him back. And when that fails, they finally have to turn in earnest to the search for another solution. Because these people have space travel and it hasn't occurred to them that they can just find a nice planet that's not a lava-filled hellscape or barely subsistence level and they can colonise that. They clearly have tremendous resources. It's very strange. They, yeah, if you start thinking about the world building of their mm. society, they are truly evil. <laughs> they are just dark. She says that, oh, we've been trying for years and decades in my whole life to come up with a solution. And I don't believe her. Yeah. Because yeah. if your solution is looking at the kid and having a big party for him, a big party that I'm going to just put out there looks like an Indian wedding. It was problematic. <laughs> Which is bad. But that's not a good thing, guys. <laughs> and the solution is to trick the kid into being happy about it and sending any dissident to it to a moon. <laughs> it's a rock. There's so many things wrong with this society. I think part of the problem is that they had this idea of doing what I shall generously call an homage to Omalas. But Omalas is a very small short story and frankly, it's not the kind of narrative that is designed to need a lot of world building. Whereas an episode of Star Trek needs that level of logistical thinking. Even if it's not obvious in the script, you need to think about how society works to build the foundations for what we see on screen. And it just, it speaks to me of the creative bankruptcy of Strange New Worlds, that when Gene Roddenberry wanted his Star Trek to have credibility as a work of science fiction, he employed cutting edge science fiction writers to write scripts for his episodes. Obviously that worked out badly with Harlan Ellison, but the results were iconic episodes like A Mock Time and The City on the Edge of Forever, 
And the other writers, you know, DC Fontana, Jean Kuhn and all the rest, they were really engaged with contemporary science fiction. And then you get to Strange New Worlds and they're like, oh yeah, we're just going to do this short story that was cutting edge and brilliant and world changing when it was first published four years after Star Trek was cancelled. Before the first convention. Mm. My other really big problem mm. is that I got the impression that we were supposed to believe that the child choosing to accept his fate of being a battery for their entire civilization for however long he would survive mm. is the same as Pike accepting his fate of saving a bunch of people and becoming disabled for life. Yeah, I'm just going to put this out there. Children can't consent to that. And that kid obviously was not told. No, he was led to believe that there was some sort of noble fate for him, but he didn't know what it would entail. And even if he did, he would not be able to freely consent. Right. If they had adapted their system to run off half a dozen adults, that is still terrible and that is a great tragedy, but those adults would at least be able to consent to their fate. So, that's bad. And also, the way that it ended with him staring into the sun and with this subtext, I felt like Pike was thinking to himself, gee, that kid died and it's actually all about me. Yeah. Which, again, not a good look for our favourite captain. I kind of hate Pike right now. You know, we're all, again, supposed to believe that he is tricked by his sexy ex. And they have this tragic love story that can't work because she's actually evil. Mm. Mm. And none of that works for me. None of it works for me. Spock and the kid was my favourite part. Yes, yes. Rukia and Mabenga, I continue to be upset about the whole Mabenga of it all, but at least he has a plot. But also, because that story was being told in this episode, the subtext was Rukia needs to be sacrificed. I am concerned that's where they're going with it. I saw something that really enraged me as I was looking at the reviews. There was a comment at trekmovie.com, nearly always the source of the worst comments outside of Reddit, but they said Mabenga was abusive to Rakia because he's keeping her in the transporter buffer. And okay, this is not a sustainable situation. It's not emotionally healthy for either of them. And yes, Something has to change, but I feel like just letting your child die is not great either. I'm going to take a really radical stance here. I think the preventable death of children is something that we should avoid, both in real life and in fiction. Weird. Controversial. What are you thinking? Look, last episode you came out with a very strong anti-child-eating stance, and I respect that. I'm going to take it a step further and say, let's just not let children die, if we can possibly avoid it. If this was an episode of ER, I feel like the plot would be Mabenga learning to let Rakia go. That yes. 
that prolonging her life is worse ultimately than allowing her disease to run its course. However, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is not ER. Unfortunately. This is Star Trek. Spoilers. Spoilers for ER. <laughs> that is a plot. Oh, see? See? I know how this, this genre it, works. It is an ongoing subplot in, I'm going to say the third season, but I'm not exactly sure. That is literally about both the parent and the child and the doctor mm. coming to the realization that what's best for the child is to let them go that they can't save them and trying to save them is just going to lower their enjoyment of life yeah and, and maybe... that's super sad it's tragic and i do feel like that is a possible way for Rukia's story to go but I want that to be earned and I want that to be ultimately empowering for Mabenga and Rukia even though it is tragic and even right. though like how empowered can Rukia be when she's dead but the way this episode was handled I have lost all faith that they would execute that story in a tasteful right. or meaningful way and I feel like Mabenga and Rukia and their storyline have already been subject to a lot of fandom racism and I don't want to see a black family suffer. Exactly. I am very upset because again there is this real feeling that they are looking at a little black girl and they don't want to save her and kind yeah. of they don't want to save the little brown kid either. And again, that's just a bunch of people standing outside and saying, oh, well, that's pretty sad that those people are dying, but they're not my kids. They're expecting them to die and not trying anything. Whereas Mabenga is trying. And the thing about, okay, so with the abuse comment, oh. like, yes. So Mabenga's solution is problematic. Yes. And it's a flaw in his parenting and his doctoring. However, Rukia knows, like they have a conversation about why it's happening in this episode. So the idea that she's being abused is yeah. just insane to me. No, no, this is because fandom hates black people and it does not want to see a black father acting out of desperation to save his child as anything other than cruelty. And I'm just going to put this out there. I think fandom would have a lot more problems with this whole episode if the child was an adorable little white girl and Alora was played by Indira Varma, say. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. Again, I really liked Spock and the First Servant. Did mm. he even have a name? Was he he didn't. No, he's not allowed to have a name. He's just the First Servant. There is a story here about why his father has stuck by him and manoeuvred to become his physician because he's not allowed to be his father. And what happened to his mother? Has she accepted his fate and detached herself emotionally from him as far as that is possible? Mm -hmm. There is a whole story about this broken little family and I'm really sad that we didn't get it. Right. And then instead we got Pike's sad girlfriend. Can I just and, say, like, you know, 
I just, like that relationship did not sell me in any way. No, I was about to say I knew from the very first preview scene that this was going to be an Omelas homage. I didn't expect it to the end the way it did, but that meant that at no point did I trust Alora and I didn't find her convincing. No disrespect to the actress, who I understand was in something or other, but the character was a generic Star Trek love interest. She was in Librarians with Rebecca. Of course, yes. This episode really upset me in like profound ways. <laughs> I can't say anything more about it. I've just, I want Rukia to live because Jim Kirk lived in Into Darkness, so. Yes let Rukia live. That's where I am. And I don't want her to be sacrificed to teach Mabenga a lesson about grief and life. Yeah. I don't want Mbenga's white colleagues to tell him he did the right thing. Yeah. I just, I want none of that. I want him to use the information from the first servant's dad to help Rukia. And I don't care if that's fantasy. I don't care if that's too packed or too easy. Like, I just, I don't care. That's what I want. Look, I want a future where I can imagine Rukia as a cadet on the Enterprise under Kirk. Yes. I want little black girls to have the same opportunities for a future as Spock and Chapel and, yeah. Spock died and came back. Kirk died and came back. Yeah, yeah. So many men <laughs> died and came back in multiple franchises. This is literally one of the theses of the novel I am revising. So <laughs> that and the Prime Directive. Actually, it's bad. So really, <laughs> this whole episode just exists to promote my book. If something good can come of it. <laughs> Before we, we move on to the Serene Squall, let's have a quick discussion of another series which has had some pretty violent school shooting illusions. And somehow people didn't get it until our year 2022. We're talking about Kenobi and people are just now figuring out that Darth Vader is basically a school shooter. I don't understand how you can have watched those movies and not gotten this from the beginning. And why are people angry at this revelation now? Yes. And why were the people who around The Last Jedi were saying Kylo Ren is literally a school shooter, not like that good Darth Vader boy, why are they suddenly so quiet? Okay, and so they're also now calling Reva literally a school shooter not like that darth vader guy even though her actual what the fuck is being a survivor of darth vader's school shooting i am <sighs> this is what i mean when i say that media literacy is flatlined <laughs> because i do not understand how you can watch any of this no. People were, when they were watching the book of Boba Fett and there were a hundred think pieces about how Anakin killing the sand people was bad and they'd never noticed before. And I, what? That is literally a plot point. And I understand <laughs> like, that many of the people talking now saw those movies when they were quite young. I understand that you miss things, but I just think that there is something to be said for 
revisiting the stories of your childhood as an adult and reconsidering them in that light. And for the record, I don't know that I think we needed to see this much of Order 66 on our screens. Order 66 has been revisited in every single Star Wars property that has happened Mm. since Revenge of the Sith. It was in Clone Wars. It was in Rebels. They don't do Order 66 in Mandalorian because he wasn't there, but they do basically the same thing with his backstory of being a child who is hunted down by stormtroopers. Also, Grogu did survive Order 66. We don't see much of it, but there are glimpses. I guarantee in in Mandalorian (laughs) Season 3, we're going to see Grogu's flashback to Order 66. Yes. Because seeing it through the eyes of a very small child is just what we need right now. (laughs) And the thing is that in my other, in my Star Wars podcast, we did a, you know, favorite moments, top three moments in Revenge of the Sith. And my first one that I mentioned was Vader killing the younglings. Yeah. That's one of my favorite moments in the film because it is so impactful. It is a change to the storyline. It is how Darth Vader exists. Yes. And those scenes and the Order 66 sequence are extraordinary. They're certainly not scenes that I enjoy watching, but in a fairly bad movie, in a fairly bad trilogy, they stand out as one of the few moments of really profound emotional impact. Okay, so I'm just going to (laughs) say... Yes. There are many flaws in Star Wars prequels, but they are neither a bad trilogy, and that is the best Star Wars movie. <laughs> I completely respect your opinion, and I do enjoy <laughs> Revenge of the Sith in many ways. It might, okay, it might not be the best Star Wars movie, but it is. <laughs> I love that. Like I will admit that it is not the best. <laughs> and the thing is that I love those movies. The Star Wars prequels are still my favorite movies in the world. Right. And the thing about order 66 in revenge of the sith was that was the early 2000s it was after columbine but school shootings and massacres in general were not a daily part of our lives i completely understand why dave filoni keeps revisiting this but i don't think we need to keep seeing it and reaver's memory of playing dead among her fallen schoolmates as a real little girl did in uvaldi was devastating was devastating obviously all of that was written and filmed before oh yeah they didn't know no it's it's traumatic and i want to say because we took paramount plus to task for this that disney plus did put up a warning saying that this is hard it's interesting that they did that in america because there was no warning in australia and (laughs) School shootings are obviously much more abstract here, but Mm. we have been getting the same headlines. Yeah, I've seen a lot on Twitter about how American news gets everywhere. Yeah. Much more than other news gets to us, which I firmly believe. And this is often the case with really terrible events, especially in English-speaking countries. The Grenfell disaster was covered minute by minute here. But Uvalde has certainly been a prominent part of our news cycle. And even stuff like the police lying about their actions has made it to headlines, which is very unusual. Usually I have to seek out American sources for coverage at that level. 
So I am surprised Disney Plus didn't put its warning out internationally, but I'm glad mm. they put it out in America where it's most, most needed. Yeah. Just before we get off of our digression into Kenobi, mm. um, which is the best, by the way. It is very good. <laughs> Oh, and also, I did want to mention that in Clone Wars, when they did Order 66, they didn't do the temple. They did mm. Ahsoka and Rex and Maul and the stormtroopers, which was just as traumatic, but it was traumatic in a different way. And again, it was about adults. Like, even yes. Ahsoka at that point, she's not an adult. She's like 16 or 17, but she is not a, a child. baby. <laughs> yeah. So there is a different level of... Yeah, Trauma. the temple massacre is its own thing. Right, but now I forgot what I was going to say about Kenobi. Oh, that the plot of Kenobi, and obviously we're like spoiling this all over the place, but the plot of Kenobi, there's only one episode less, so I feel comfortable saying this and knowing what happens mm. in the future of the series. It's about Obi-Wan learning that he has to be one of the people who stands and fights and not one of the people who walks away. Right. Like that's literally the plot. And so they are doing the Omela's story in a much better way than this episode of Star Trek did. It's also, you know, Indira Varma's character talking about how she participated in the murder of families and forced sensitive children and now she saves them and I really hope that's going to be the fate of Reva as well and it's much messier and more complicated than staring into the sun and being sad right but I am I love because when Kenobi was first announced and I liked every single tweet that was like Kenobi can be about Obi-Wan standing in the sand and looking at the sun mm. for six hours and I will love it. <laughs> and it's like, that's true, but it is so much better than that. I love that this series has validated my beliefs of Obi-Wan Kenobi, like all of his flaws and all of his strengths. Yes. And I feel like I'm living a high, again, as someone who the prequels are my favorite films in Star Wars and also just in general of every franchise. I feel like I've been given an award that everything I believed, like what I thought those movies were about is true. Yeah, and yeah. It's just this really wonderful feeling and it's the opposite with Strange New Worlds and I'm kind of upset about it because Strange New Worlds has so much going for it. It has wonderful performances and it's beautiful to look at and the stories aren't bad on their face. I was thinking, aside from the last two episodes, and I guess my opinion might be subjective, whatever, but this season of Strange New Worlds feels like season three of Voyager in that it's very competent Star Trek without being in mm -hmm. any way groundbreaking, original or challenging. Mm -hmm. And that is overall faint praise. Like, I love season three of Voyager, but that's because I know it's sort of levelling up and preparing to level up again for season four. It's also a pretty impressive feat for a Star Trek first season. 
But the thing is, we've had Discovery and Prodigy and Lower Decks, and we know how good a Star Trek first season can actually be. And Okay, let's talk about <laughs> I was just going to say the first season of Discovery was messy as hell, but it was actively trying to do something new. And mm. Strange New Worlds very much is not. Right. So, talk like just... a pirate day. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Okay. So, there is the central character of not Dr. Aspen, but actually Captain Angel. Yes. Played by Jessie Keitel. Can I say, I love her. I love Jessie Keitel, and I love who we thought Dr. Aspen was, and I cannot mm. stand Captain Angel. Remember many, many episodes ago, we discussed how much for just the planet, the novel? Yeah! John Ford, I think, is yes. the same? Yes, yes. So there is a character in that book that is a pirate queen. Like she's literally called oh a pirate queen yes. and she does a song and dance number in black lace and leather. Oh my gosh. Yes. And that is all I could think about. As soon as the Captain Angel reveal happened, mm. it came a homage to How Much for Just the Planet, which is a book that is purposefully over the top and ridiculous. Yes. Also, How Much for Just the Planet was good, and this was kind of annoying. Like, it really troubled me that we had this wonderful performance from Kaitel as Dr. Aspen, and mm. then she unmasks herself as the Pirate Queen, which is amazing, and also I don't know what Captain Angel's pronouns are. They might be they. Either way, they are a pirate monarch, but they're also kind of a ranting pantomime villain. Right. It was like a switch was flipped. Mm. Clearly on purpose. Because again, everything that happened with pirates in this, from the Orion to the Black Lieutenant mm. to the Mutiny, even the Enterprise crew was ridiculous and over the top and purposefully piratical, but... Bad. I didn't like that... So, their conversations with Spock mm. before the reveal were really interesting. Yes. The, the needling and the, I am going to make you think about your life and my life and how they're similar. That was really well done and it was subtle and it was nuanced <laughs> and there was a point. Yes. And then it turned out that it was just all manipulation for their plan to get Zavarius out of jail. Zavarius. Yeah. Yeah. I is. I, it was just, I don't know. I felt like something got lost in translation. It really did. I'm looking at the notes that I took during this episode. I wrote, I love Dr. Aspen, but their costumes are awful. Next bullet point. Ooh, a twist! Oh, an evil trans woman. Okay, a trans woman playing an evil NB. Now they're ranting and sexualized, but at least their costumes make sense. Then Erin, my flatmate, said it's like she's forgotten how to act, and she started shouting about how bad this was. So I have to admit that there came a point where I sort of stopped paying attention because I was 
shouting, and I totally missed Ston, for example. I was obsessed with Ston. That was my favourite part of the entire episode. Gosh. Oh, gosh. I don't want to watch it again, but maybe I'll... and I don't care. (laughs) I might scrubble through to see Ston, because I saw that they did get his hair right, but I was totally oblivious. I was very distracted by thinking about how it's 2022 and we have a situation where a trans actress plays a non-binary character who is faking their identity to get access to a secured location. Oh gosh, it's so painful. Okay, so I want to read Jesse James Keitel's tweet. Yes, Because I, I wanted their opinion to be referenced. Yes. Trans people have a complicated history with TV and film, but at a time when trans women are constantly vilified, mocked, and legislated against in real life, I take pride in flipping the script. Cis actors get to play every shade of good and evil. Let us do the same. I totally agree with her, and I will also note that the episode's director is a Navajo trans woman. However, the writers are both cis. They are a cis gay man and a cis straight white woman who is the author of a really bad looking YA science fiction romance trilogy. I spent yesterday reading the one star reviews. They're actually hilarious. And the thing about television is that it's not a medium where directors have a lot of power. You know, they call it the writer's medium. And Mm -hmm. I completely understand what Jesse James Keitel is saying. And I agree with her that she should have the opportunity to be evil and bad and manipulative. A pirate queen. A pirate queen. A pirate (laughs) monarch of any gender. I just don't think this is that episode. And I don't think that this is a franchise which has laid the groundwork for that to be okay. I'm hanging on to the hope this character will come back. They escaped, so... They're clearly being set up and they're important to Cybok. So they're clearly like, <laughs> I feel like they're going to be the big bad couple of. Yeah. Yeah. If not, you know, probably by the end of this season, they'll be revealed. And then next season, it'll be like, they're the big bad couple that's going after everything, which is kind of, that's exciting to me. I'm into that. Let's see it. That's awesome. But the way that this particular episode played out, I really liked them more when they were pretending and it's upsetting because when they're not pretending obviously that is their real personality but it felt like the other way around it felt like Mm. I was getting to know them more and I had more intimate knowledge when they were pretending than when they were revealed the mask came off and it turned out to be a less interesting mask underneath yeah I really love the real Dr. Aspen. If Kaitel's performance as Dr. Aspen is anything like the real character, I would like them also to have a dual role as the real Dr. Aspen. The thing is, there's no conversation about Dr. Aspen's pronouns. They're just referred to as they briefly in the first scene. It's very organic and it's very understated as people were saying that they wished Adira, Adira's mm-hmm. pronoun conversation had been. The thing is, it's therefore really easy to miss that they are non-binary. I've seen people misgendering them by accident, simply because they did not realise. Their conversations with Spock were a really great opportunity to say, 
you don't have to be part of the binary just like I'm not part of the gender binary. It could have been as simple as that. I know you said it was nuanced and subtle. I just think it was maybe too subtle. Because of the way that it was presented, because they didn't do that, it was suggested that Spock's identity as a half Vulcan, half human mm. is the same as a non-binary person, I guess, as a half man, half woman. That's not how it works, but okay. Oh, God. Yeah. And therefore, again, just like with Pike staring into the sun and thinking about his own future instead of the dead child, we have Spock thinking about his own identity instead of Dr. Aspen slash Captain Angels. I get that they're the main characters, but it feels like they're stealing the thunder from the people who are actually these identities. I just don't like that. The critic Darren Mooney, who is also getting the mediocre versions of Strange New Worlds that you and I are getting, has a really interesting review about Spock as a queer icon going back to the 60s and how tiptoeing around that mm. is actually sort of putting him back in the celluloid closet because mm -hmm. the writing for Spock continues to be incredibly heteronormative. The writing for everyone. Two women in this episode. No, I know. I know. <laughs> it's... I did not believe people when they said that the Spock and Uhura relationship only exists for Spock to be heterosexual. But... No, I always thought that was wildly unfair. However... The fact that we are now seven episodes into this series and he has been very heterosexual. And Pike, too. Yes. They are just blatantly heterosexual. The closest we get to any queering is Captain Angel. And again, we don't actually know what their deal is versus Dr. Aspen. And potentially Christine Chapel, who in this episode kisses Spock. And like, I loved that because I hate the kiss they have in TOS and mm. this was fixing it in a way. I love their relationship. I love that he said, I need a friend. Everything Christine Chapel. She continues to be <laughs> my favorite part of this show. And everything Chapel and Spock was really good. Everything to bring in Spock is really good. I am so excited to watch to bring in Stan fall in love in the background. Yes. I cannot wait for it. But those are four people. And like my friend Sam, friend of the pod, always says a triangle has three sides. There could be another way of looking mm, at this. Mm. We could get some male-male or female-female relationships here. Right. So far, it's not that Spock couldn't be bisexual, it's that the writers have not even considered that possibility. I'm going to say something very mean about Akiva Goldsman. He seems like the type of guy who is completely oblivious to the existence of Kirk Spock's splash going back decades. Which is incomprehensible to me. No, same, but like... As someone who doesn't even ship it. No, look, just this morning I saw someone musing that Chapel knows more about 
Spock than Kirk does and someone replied that's because Kirk is not in love with Spock and I also don't ship it and yet I was outraged it's just painful to me I just don't understand I'm just so mad that the most overtly queer character in this series so far is evil is evil I'm sorry (laughs) pirate monarch and and their crew is okay their crew is an Irish stereotype so, and mostly people of color. Yes. And I like I just want to give a shout out to unnamed black lady lieutenant because she was clearly the most competent person on that ship and was running the thing and getting zero credit. And that is very true to life, but I want better for her. Yes. I, wa- I wanted the Enterprise to save her. I want these you know, pirates to unionize. Like, I was just so mad. You mentioned Our Flag Means Death. The makeup was very Our Flag Means Death or Jack Sparrow. It was Mm. very typical now times, modern times piracy, which is not, or black sails. Like, they all have the same look that is not true to life. And but also these were, the like, future. space pirates doing it, yeah, so yeah. it was like, why? The other thing is that they looked like the belters from The yes. Expanse, and particularly in the final couple of seasons where the villainous belters were predominantly dark-skinned black women, as distinct from the heroic light-skinned black women. And also the Orion's makeup was so bad. Oh my gosh. Just like Uhura and her glittery eyeshadow, his whole face glittered. My green son looked like Mm -hmm. that green was his skin. This guy looked like he had taken green face paint and painted it all over his face to make a point. And I was very upset by the whole thing. I know that's like a stupid thing to be upset about, but I was. It was very distracting. I didn't like him. Our brief is fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace. On which note, I would like to say that the costumes for the guest actors on this series and some of the civilian wear for the regulars is really cheap looking and badly made. And the only exception has been a few of Tapring's outfits, including the designer dress, which I think is Balenciaga in Spock's dream. I'm very excited for next episode because there's like exciting costuming. So I'm looking forward to that. Maybe that's where the costume budget budget went. went. Yes. Okay. But I hate the 90s aesthetic that is on this show. I I don't understand it. It is not futuristic in any way. It is just, it all fits weird. But the thing that Dr. Aspen was wearing, like you, I was like, how is this a professional person no i was like what is that this looks like it comes from shine and it looks like nightclub wear and i was thinking is this an homage to counselor troy you know the counselor is always a bit sexy that's inappropriate it looks like the sort of thing that deanna wears when she's possessed and sexualized but it was also very similar to what nurse chapel wore in the shore leave episode so it's like it's supposed to be fashion I but i hated it on christine chapel and i hated it on dr aspen maybe i'm just and... a prude but i don't think you should have your butt cheek out at work <laughs> I, it was just that and then that was the thing is that 
Nurshapel wore it on vacation. Yeah, so it wasn't yeah. like what she wears to work. And I get that Dr. Aspen's not in Starfleet and I like what I wear to work is not what people would consider professional. So I'm not against the idea of wearing whatever you want and being a professional person that shouldn't take it away from them just because they're wearing clubbing clothes on the bridge. But it was strange. Yeah. And, and uh, as we said, it makes more sense after the reveal. But it was just so cheap looking that it was really distracting yeah. me. Whereas like Ortegas and Pike and Chapel some of the time, their civilian clothes, they look like they shop at Uniqlo. It's boring. Mm. It's not futuristic, but at least Uniqlo stuff is well made. Right. This looked like knockoffs from Urban Outfitters. <laughs> that is not a compliment. No. And so I likened it to what Gwen Stefani wore when No mm. Doubt was the biggest band. And I should say that No Doubt is the first band I saw in person. Oh my God, my I'm first, so my jealous. My first concert was No Doubt. And because I'm me, obviously, dressed mm. exactly like Gwen Stefani to go oh. to the concert. Did you wear an appropriative bindi? No, because this was pre-bindi. This was when No Doubt was, it was like that first Oh, album. yeah. Oh, God, that album was so good. It was like, you know, the one with just a girl. Their first, was it, Tra Tragic Kingdom. It was yeah. the Tragic Kingdom era, which was pre-bindi. Yes, yes. I'm sure it's still appropriation, but <laughs> pre-bindi. So... That's what I associate these costumes with. It's like, it's this very specific 90s look, like late 90s, you know, oh, yeah. 98, 99 or whatever. It's just super interesting to me. And so I, it's like my childhood and it's, you know, that hilarious time when I was 18 and people thought I was a 25-year-old Gwen Stefani <laughs> in a bar. Precious. <laughs> like, it's all hilarious, you know? And so it's just... I have fond memories of these costumes, of this, of this fashion, and so like I want to like the costumes, but I, because of that, I cannot think of them as anything from the 23rd century. No. Not work for me. And I agree with you, they're cheap. They're like the knockoff version. They're not what yeah. Gwen Stefani would wear, what yeah. I would wear, pretending to be Gwen Stefani. I noticed it particularly with Alora's costume in lift us up dot 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 particularly her first costume it was very much like what Delaine wore from season two of Babylon 5 onwards but with a sort of oddly shaped chest piece that didn't quite fit and then T'Pring was also wearing a, a an interestingly fitted chest piece this week and the other thing was Babylon 5 also had no costume budget whatsoever and yet Alora's costume looked even cheaper than Delaine's which looked like it had been assembled from fabric from Joanne's. It's just very strange. Where is the money gone? What are their priorities? I really like the Starfleet uniforms, but all the other costumes I'm very indifferent to. Yeah, and they had too many Starfleet uniforms. They could yeah, it's so weird. You were, and then have... I don't know. It's just strange. The, the costuming is odd. Can we talk about Cybok? I realized the reveal was coming and I was so angry that they were bringing in Cybok, who I love in this terrible episode. First of all, his wig. So bad. 
I cannot. I just, it is so fake. So, I mean, I realize that we don't know who the actor is and we don't know what's going on there, but oh my gosh, was it was, it was horrific it. waking. And the other thing about Cybok that I want to say is people are up in arms about the idea of Kolinar being something that all Vulcans go through. Hmm. And I want to say, why are you trusting Captain Angel and Cybok for knowing what Kolinar is? Like, do not be angry at the lore changing when it's coming from extremely unreliable mm. narrators. Why are we mad about that and not Spock and Tupring just ending their engagement without a fight to the death? Or Spock saying Cybok was born out of wedlock when <laughs> we know this was Sarek's first wife? Like, there is lore that matters to me and then there is the nature of colonar it's exactly like the kissing people just need to calm down i love that topring is doing like human sexuality research like topring honey please stop reading the fiction of 20th century men to get your ideas of human (laughs) sex please read something written in your century my headcanon is that she is actually you know, she started there and has gone all the way to the future, but Spock oh. wouldn't let her finish. Oh, okay. I like that idea. Also, I just pictured her reading Fifty Shades of Grey, and that is objectively hilarious. People are just so angry about Vulcan culture, which... Vulcan culture, I just want to put it out there, everyone, doesn't exist. I will say I have a really hard time reconciling a mock time with... What we have here, where they briefly end and then resume their engagement, but also everything we know about Dupring so far tells me that if she fell in love with Ston and no longer wanted to marry Spock, she would communicate this well in advance of Spock's Ponfar, in writing, in triplicate. Are there, are people are upset that Dupring and Spock have like a good relationship. <laughs> oh like... no, I love that. I'm just having a lot of trouble reconciling a mock time with what we have here. Presumably other stuff will happen. You know, I was all, like I said, I was already team decanonize the menagerie. And I'm just like, decanonize TOS. I am for it. I have never, I, you know, as I said earlier, that the Star Wars prequels are my favorite films. Mm-hmm. I actually love prequels as a concept because I think that there's a rigidity of storytelling that requires you to tell stories smartly that yes. I enjoy. Yes. So I have never been anti-prequel and I've never fully understood people who are anti-prequel because it's just not my point of view. So it's hard for me to relate to. But I am now fully (laughs) like, I want TOS to go away. And I understand that this series makes TOS bad. (laughs) And it was already bad. So and I say that with affection Obviously not all TOS and there's plenty of good and there's things that I enjoy and I appreciate it historically, but everything that happens with Debring, everything that happens with Pike, everything that happens with Chapel, like all of it, I am just like, no. I don't want any of that for these people. No, and I completely understand, but it would also be so easy for the Strange New Worlds writers to make more effort to conform to 
what we already have with TOS. Like you talked about prequels forcing a writer to mm-hmm. work with they cleverness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have looked at the restrictions they imposed on themselves and went, nah. <laughs> it's and that weird. feels like cheating to me. Very strange. Yes. But I also, a, a particular Christian Chapel, who again is my favorite part of yes, Strange New World, yes. I do not want the Angel Barrett version. No, if we can CGI Jess Bush into TOS, that would make me very happy. I read a really great Vanity Fair article with her where she discussed her art because she's also a painter and a sculptor. And then I went An through her one. portfolio. Oh my gosh, I love her work. It's weird. It's a little vulgar, it's beautiful, it's detailed. She has this extraordinary oil portrait of Uncle Jack Charles, who is an iconic Aboriginal actor and elder and activist. And it is just extraordinary. And if I had $10,000, I would buy that painting. And so I feel like Jess Bush is, in fact, much too good for Star Trek, but I want her to earn a lot of money on Strange New Worlds and then have a long career of getting convention fees to fund her Mm -hmm. art (laughs) she's amazing oh with the other thing the final thing we should say about this episode is uhura was not in it yeah i certainly feel a way about that because i'm remembering like the early part of the season when she was basically the point of view character and it's the week of juneteenth and mabenga and uhura Mabenga had one line and Uhura wasn't in it at all. Mabenga had one line, part of the pirate plot. Yeah. Totally nonsensical. And the thing is that he had a big, like, I get that we're back to episodic, but I I continue to not like the idea that things don't, like, Pring and Spock have an arc going on. Mm. So the fact that Mabenga, that Una has never brought up Rukia to Mabenga, no. They haven't had a conversation since the beginning. But Una also hasn't managed to have a conversation about how she has been pretending to be a human <laughs> for decades. They said at the beginning that this was going to be episodic but with emotional continuity, but so far only Pike and Spock are getting that. Um, and yes. Spock's is like, did you know that he has a lot of conflict between his human and Vulcan sides? But this has never been explored before. This is completely new information <laughs> to me. I'm so glad we're finally looking at this side of his life all of tos all of the movies and season two of discovery were about spock dealing with this but Mm -hmm. we're gonna continue we have this game that we're playing in our discord what's this episode going like who (laughs) is this episode going to be about and it's a little upsetting that spock is winning yeah (laughs) like when he is straight up the again if you've never seen Star Trek, you know who Spock is. Right. Meanwhile, Ortegas has not had a single episode. Literally all we know about her is that she flies good and she... Quips. Quips. Yeah. Right. And Juneteenth, you mentioned, is now a federal holiday. Yeah. I get it off from work. I know that not all slavery conforms to the American model, but it's weird to have an episode around Juneteenth when slavery is very much in the conversation and also the prospect of being sold to Klingons and enslaved is kind of a joke. We haven't even discussed the horrible 
actual subplot of the pirates, which is they kidnap the crew and they're going to sell them into slavery. Yes. And that they are being sold by fake Dr. Aspen as the problem at mm. the border. That what is happening in space, the you know, the Federation and any other nice, good, assimilated peoples <laughs> would all be getting along together and everything would be hunky-dory if not for these evil people at the border who, as far as I can tell, again, looking at my unnamed black lady, just want a better life. Yeah, and also these people are asking for our help, but actually it's a trap. There is a really interesting story here, and it comes back to my idea that this should have been a season about investigating attacks on colonies. This idea that if you leave Federation space, you are on your own, and if you get into trouble, no one will come for you unless you have an advocate within the Federation. That is really interesting. That is a problem with the Federation that I am much more interested in exploring than the alleged poverty and squalor that Allura accuses Pike of ignoring. Which, oh my god, have you actually seen... Anyway, and instead of that interesting story about the problems with the Federation, we have the fake humanitarian crisis and the evil queer person. Erin said this, and then you said something very similar the next day. It's like Strange New Worlds is taking progressive elements like inclusion and diversity and throwing them at the story, but without thinking about them in any way and without thinking about the subtext they are creating. They want the credit for being inclusive, but they don't want to actually do the work. Yes, and that is also everything wrong with the like social media Mm. branding of social justice as well. Yes. It's everything wrong with the world. Yes. (laughs) It can be universalized to not just a problem with Star Trek, but also a problem with America Mm. and the whole, you know, of humanity. Yes. But to confine it to within Star Trek, you contrast this with Discovery, which is sort of Strange New World's sister series, where they've made mistakes and very serious ones, and they have been responsive to criticism and have always made an honest effort to consider and be aware of the subtext and the stories that they were telling and what those stories meant for the audience. And certainly I I went looking, as of course I do on Reddit and in in the comments of reviews, and yeah, some trans and Mm non-binary people mm -hmm. really loved Aspen slash Angel and others were really hurt and... It's impossible to create a character that everyone will love and that everyone will feel okay with, but the proportion of people who felt harmed by Aspen was greater than it should have been. Sorry, everybody, I didn't like these episodes. I want to see the real Dr. Aspen, also played by Jesse James Cartel. I want them to be identical, but without the face tattoo and with a wardrobe of well-cut, extremely sexy suits. And if they've gone back for Dr. Aspen, then the doctor can hang out with the dog that they rescued after Memento Mori. Sounds good. Yes. Happy ending. Happy endings for them. (laughs) Also, Cybok and Captain Angel as... 
partners, romantic partners, as, as husband and wife maybe. I love that. And I am picturing the awkward Thanksgiving dinner at Sarek's house. And it's great. I am, however, bracing myself for her tragic end. Yeah, I don't see... For Captain Angel to die in a horrible way that makes Cybok worse. <laughs> I didn't even think of that, but you're right. Sorry. Uh, no, no. <laughs> Captain Angel's not in Star Trek Vibe. <laughs> Therefore, something horrible happened. Which is a real shame because I actually think that their aesthetic would really suit Star Trek V. Like, I, I can see the Modern Nimbus 3. Man, I still, I just want to put it out there, I still want my Nimbus 3. I know. <laughs> Sorry. I want that series. Can we, I mean, if Captain Angel were to get a spin-off series, that's what I would want it to be. Oh my god, you would have like Romulans, but before they came out of hiding and mm-hmm. Klingons. Oh my gosh, yes, that would be amazing. Okay, where is Katrina Cornwell right now? Yes. In this mess, in these messes of an <laughs> It is painful to me to even imagine where Katrina Cornwell is right now. Let's say... She is working with T'Pring and Stan in Vulcan Not Prison. Oh, yes. Because I really love Vulcan Not Prison. And it would be kind of fun if Katrina Cornwell was like Stan's BFF, where he like was sad that T'Pring wasn't available. Mm. And he was trying to force down his, you know, emotions that he's not supposed to have. And she was like, you know, you just got to accept these things and make it about you and not about her and come to a healthy realization so she's giving marriage counseling to stan is apparently my answer i love this so much and i loved how the vulcan not prison basically looked like a mindfulness retreat like i want to go to that place for a spa day my answer is that i watched season four of stranger things last week and i was very inspired by its silliest plot line so Katrina Cornwell was beamed out of the explosion by the Klingons and partially healed and sort of shaken down for any Federation secrets in her head. And now she is in the gulag of Rurapente. Oh, yes. In the Dilithium mines. Can Tom Wallace Gaia be with her? Yes, because I love him. Can Enzo be with, with her? That's easier to say. Oh my god. So he was one of the villains in the Dust Boot series, and I love him. And I'm so glad that he got to play a more sympathetic character than a true believer Nazi. And yes, he can play one of the other prisoners. Everyone go watch Crossing Lines on Netflix. Really? Yes. He's awesome in it. And so is everybody else. I will do that, but also if anyone loves submarines and has access to the Dust Boot series, I haven't seen the third season yet, it's still being subtitled for Australia, but the first two seasons were great. It does end with a whole lot of characters on their way to a concentration camp, so like you kind of have to be in the mood for it, but if you enjoy your submarine dramas... Alright, so now I'm shipping them and <laughs> we're, we're good! <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to Antimatterpod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes, although our transcripts are sadly out of date because, look, the software I've been using stopped being good, and it really takes a lot of time to correct it. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram, all at antimatterpod, and write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in three weeks when we'll be discussing the final three episodes of Strange New World Season 1. What date is that? Sometime in July. <laughs> cool. July. We're recording on the 16th and 17th, and I don't know. Is that three weeks away? Mid-July. Okay. Yeah, mid-July is three weeks away, sorry. Oh my god. (laughs) Okay, join us in mid-July when we'll be discussing the final three episodes of Strange New World Season (laughs) 1.